For today, our, our final um, passage of reflection on forgiveness comes from Luke 15 and the story of the prodigal. And so hear God's word to us this morning, uh, Luke 15, verses 11 through 32. And he said, that is Jesus, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the inheritance that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, and he took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So when he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the paws that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough of bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. He felt compassion, and he ran, and he embraced him, and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead, and he is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. And now his older brother was in the field, and as he came and he drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these, <clears throat> what these uh, things meant. And the servant said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in and his father came out and entreated him. But he answered him, look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your commandment. And yet you gave, never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came and who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And the father said to him, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this brother of yours was dead, and now he's alive, and he was lost, and he is found. The word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, I pray this morning that all of us here would know you as the Father in this parable, that Wherever we find ourselves, whether we are um, like this younger son in a far country away from you, or whether we are like the elder son and we are within your house, but in a sense still away from you, help us to know, Lord, that you in your face, you're always turned towards us. You're always moving towards us. You're always entreating us and you're not moving away, no matter what we've done or how we feel towards you. 
And so I pray this morning that we would connect, that all of us would connect with you as our Father, who loves us and wants us to be part of your household. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The first part of uh, this sermon series um, was really focused on how we forgive one another. Um, looking at sort of what the interior aspect of what forgiveness looks like. And, and for this final sermon, I, I really want us to consider not forgiveness from our perspective of how we forgive and the challenges of that, but forgiveness from God's perspective. Um, and what this parable gives us is this incredible portrait, interior portrait, if you will, of the forgiving heart of God. The title of this sermon series, which apparently I've had spelled wrong the entire time, um, the title of this series is The Forgiven and Forgiving Life. And the whole idea is this, is that we can live a forgiving life towards one because we have been forgiven. And that's the Bible's, I've called it the Bible's equation on forgiveness. We forgive others because God has forgiven us. This is repeated again and again and again. Um, however, I think sometimes it's hard for us to forgive one another because our experience of God's forgiveness often doesn't translate into um, something that's really concrete and real. Sometimes God's forgiveness can be kind of an abstract thing in our lives, right? It's almost can even be a transactional, um, pretty distant from the relational realities that we live in every day. And that's why I think this parable is so powerful because uh, it, it gives us this story of embodied forgiveness. It's the story about a father, the love of a father and two sons that are in very different ways estranged from him and estranged from one another. You know, when we think about forgiveness, you know, it deals with wrongdoing. And uh, sometimes we can, in our thinking about forgiveness, think in two legal and judicial categories, right? Uh, forgiveness is to be acquitted for having done something wrong. It's to be exonerated. It's, it's not to be held guilty for our sins. And this is so true. This is absolutely true. But it's just one half of the story. And it's only the first half of the story. The second half of the story is the actual goal of forgiveness. And the goal of forgiveness is restoration. The goal of forgiveness is reconciliation. The goal of forgiveness is repaired relationships, right? Um, and this parable helps us kind of overcome our tendency for our thinking about our relationship with God in very abstract terms. Um, and so I want us to explore this story of forgiveness this morning as it's really a story about homecoming. To receive God's forgiveness in our life is to experience a, a spiritual homecoming. It is to go from being um, a kind of restless wanderer, uh, going from being, a home, in a sense, homeless, spiritually speaking, to being sons and daughters that belong in the household of the Father. Um, and here, to start as our reflection on this parable, we need to start with the figure of the Father. The, the parables often goes by the name of the, the prodigal son, right? Um, we tend to think of the younger brother as the main character of the story, but he's not the main character of the story. The main character of the story is the father. The father is the most complete of the characters. He's the most fully formed. And as we see him engage his two sons that are, a sense, estranged from him, you, you get this, this beautiful portrait of this man who has, a, who, who has a heart that is just filled with compassion 
and patience and love towards his sons. His sons are very clearly uh, conflicted in themselves, in their own sense of identity, but also in their relationship with the father. But the father himself is not conflicted whatsoever. He is completely resolved in his love towards his sons, even when his sons don't reciprocate. Um, the other night, our family, we were watching um, uh, an episode of the British PBS series, All Creatures Great and Small. Um, this is a, it's a show that's uh, set in 1930s rural England about animals, uh, a family practice of veterinarians. And in the episode that we were watching, um, Mrs. Hall, who is the live-in housekeeper for the family, she travels uh, to a larger city in hopes of meeting up with her estranged uh, son, who has just completed his training in the Royal Navy. And one of the things that you kind of learn over the course of these seasons is that Mrs. Hall uh, carries a lot of pain uh, in her relationship with her son. We don't know what the reason is, but she goes, uh, she takes the train, and she's in this busy train station waiting and waiting and waiting for her son and almost doesn't find him and meet him, but eventually does. And when uh, she finally, they're together and they have time to talk, um, he's, he's cold, he's distant, he, he doesn't really want to engage her. He's baked her some cook, baked him some of his favorite cookies and a, and a tin that, that she brought. And, and he's like, I'm not hungry. And he sort of like pushes him away. And it's really heartbreaking to watch, you know, as a parent especially, to watch, you know, this, this mother has been so keen to reconnect with her son and, and he just doesn't want to do that. He's very cold. And I, as we were watching this, our children started getting very upset at the son, Right? And one of the things they said is, uh, we promise never to treat mommy that way, right? <laughs> See, there is something special about the parent-child <clears throat> relationship that pulls on our heartstrings. In one way or another, every single person in this room is a son or a daughter, and in some cases, some of you are mothers and fathers, Right? We know how profoundly impactful relationships with our parents can be as mothers and fathers and sons and daughters. And we, our sense of our own self and our place in the world is so formed and shaped by these relationships. And many of us know as well the deep pain of brokenness in these relationships and how that brokenness can sort of stay with us for a lifetime. I think one of the powerful things about this parable is it helps us think about our relationship with God, not in the abstract, but in, in this, this most intimate and this most, most profound relationship of parent and child or father-son. God is like a father to us. God is like a father. And again, one of the reasons that forgiveness for us is sometimes too abstract is because we don't see God as a father. We tend to relate to God as like a cosmic ruler, or as like a, as a moral cosmic judge of the universe. And it's true, God is, he is the creator, he is the king, he is, he is you know, he is the judge, but he's also our father. <laughs> and that's the thing that Jesus uniquely reveals to us about God. In the Old Testament, the language of God as father is something you don't find too much. But Jesus almost only refers to God as father. He reveals to God to us as a father. 
And not just as like a father who is stern and, and you know, like, you know, disciplinarian, but, but a father who has this incredibly tender and compassionate heart. If God is a father, then that changes how we think about sin as well, right? Because again, when we think about sin, we tend to think of it as rule breaking, but, but actually sin, sin is relational, right? We don't see this in the parable, but it's, it's very evident by how joyful the father is when the son returns. He is as, you can imagine the heart of the father was as broken and as torn up when his son leaves, as joyful as he is when he receives him back. And so this, this word, what is your mental picture of God? What is your mental picture of God? Is it is it a God that's just sort of an abstract being? A God that's just so transcendent that, that he's remote and relationally distant? Or is God, is he like a father? Now, that's a hard question, depending on how good your relationship with your father is. That can be a hard one, right? But the kind of father that God is, is the one that's represented in this parable. <clears throat> and to experience God's forgiveness is to come to view God as a loving and compassionate father. And what this means is that when we sin, it's not simply like we're breaking commandments against some, some uh, rule, you know, code book or some judge. It's a, it's a violation of this fundamental relationship with God as our Father. And when this relationship is broken, it profoundly impacts us. It profoundly impacts our sense of self. It profoundly impacts our sense of our place in the world. And that's what you see in this story. Uh, in verse 11, uh, just starting looking at this a little bit more, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, and he took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when, the son, when this younger son asked his father for the inheritance and then leaves this would have been perceived as a really an, un, an unforgivable sin in that time. I mean, even today, I mean, it's, it's a pretty, pretty big deal. And, and, and likely, uh, no father would probably, normal father would probably just give a third of his estate to his younger son and say, okay, go and do what you want with it. Don't be drawing parenting principles necessarily from this parable, <laughs> right? That's not the point of the parable. But this son, he, he commits... This, this really unforgivable sin. And traditionally, um, a son would not receive an inheritance until the father passed away and died. And as long as the son remained in the household, he could enjoy the, all of his inheritance right then and there with the father. But when he asked for his inheritance, what he says is, I want the inheritance, but I don't want you. I want what's coming to me without you. In essence, he says, I wish you were dead. I want what you have, but I don't want it with you, right? One of the things that we learn about God in this parable that is also quite remarkable is that he does not force a relationship. He does not force a relationship. He does not, um, he lets the son go, right? He lets him go. Now, as God, right, God has the power, he, he certainly has the power to force a relationship, right? 
He's God. But he doesn't force a relationship because a relationship that's forced is not a relationship of freedom. And when there's not freedom in a relationship, true love doesn't develop. No relationship with God will ever flourish and grow deep and strong if it's compelled, if it's forced. Believing faith has to be come from, in a sense, a freedom that is not compelled. Otherwise, what it becomes is a kind of master-serve relationship where I realize you have the power and I have to respond. And so I serve. I'm a servant, but not a son or not a daughter. So the father lets his son leave the household. He gives him his inheritance. But what's key here is he never, he never lets go of him in his heart. He never cuts him off in his own heart. Now this younger son, I think, is, is an archetype. He's a figure of spiritual lostness that many of us, I think, can identify with in our own stories, especially if you did not grow up in the church like I did not. There's a sense that we want our inheritance and we want to build our life without God, right? Give me what's coming to me as a creature, and I want it without you, Lord. I want it without the Father. Um, it's hard to know, too, what was motivating this younger son, right? What were the reasons he had? We don't really know why he wanted to be outside the father's house. Perhaps he thought he could do better for himself. Perhaps he, he wanted to become his own man. He didn't want to live in his father's shadow and his brother's shadow. Or, or perhaps he just, it would be more fun. He would be more free. But quite the opposite happens. He makes a mess of his life. He runs out of money. Famine hits. He loses everything. And now he is reduced to servitude. Right? So he went out and he hired himself out to be one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed by the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. And the irony here is that he wanted to be free, but he ended up becoming a slave, right? <laughs> um, he wanted to go find himself, but what has happened is he has lost himself. And he's lost his identity as a son, as a beloved son, and he has now adopted the identity of a servant as a hired hand. I want to, let me just make a, a specific application here to our own context. One of the hardest things about preaching this text is, is just so much here. I had to make, I can't, I can't go everywhere with this in terms of application. But I, one application the Spirit brought to me, that is, I think applies especially to our particular congregation and community in our context of the ways in which we are like this younger brother. And uh, we do like him in that we try to find and establish our identities without the Father. We're trying to make a name for ourselves. We try to become our own person outside of God's household. And, and the way that I see, I've seen this manifest over the past 10 years in particular is that we're tempted to exchange a relationship with God for a career. We, we're tempted to sort of make a career the pathway to finding ourselves, to having an identity. Now, to be, to be really clear, there's, these do not have to be mutually contradictory things, right? It's, these, are not, these are not things you can't do both of. But oftentimes, I definitely see it a lot, where people, they prioritize career. They prioritize career over God, right? And when push comes to shove, the priority is school. The priority is career. The priority is 
pursuing that thing. And, and what happens is that, that the identity-shaping power of a relationship with God just sort of fades. And what really becomes identity-shaping is making it, establishing myself, becoming successful. And we live in a culture that's meritocratic, which means that it's just um, you have status by what you accomplish, not to the family you're born to, um, but what you accomplish. So how hard you work or how successful or how much recognition you get. And so our culture tells us all the time, if you want to be a full self, you find just that right job that's perfect and you make a name for yourself. But the problem is this. At the end of life, it leaves you empty. It leaves you empty-handed. The thing about a career is that it, it won't love you back the way that the Father loves you. I mean, it, a good career can give you a sense of purpose, and it might even, even a sense of being at home in the world, and you might love it, and it might love you for a season, but, as long, but it will only love you as long as you continue to serve it. <laughs> it will only love you as long as your, your performance matches what it requires. And at the end of the day, what it means, though, is you're, you've adopted the primary identity as a hired servant, a hired hand, right? And your value will always depend upon your performance and what you can contribute. And as long as that goes well for the whole of your life, you're probably good for a little bit until you retire, right? But if the money runs out or, or famine hits or your talent fails you, then you all of a sudden feel your insecurity and your instability and your sense of homelessness, homelessness in the world. See, this, the younger son has a kind of spiritual awakening about his situation. He, he becomes aware of his sin against his father. He says, he came to himself and he said, how many are my father's hired servants? They have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will rise and I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as a hired servant. And that phrase, he came to himself or he came to his senses is another translation, is a very insightful description of what happens when we repent, right? We come to our senses. It's like we, we wake up from sleepwalking. We, we wake up and we're, we're not living in illusion I mean, the reality is, is that it's possible to live an illusion for years of your life, decades of your life, and repentance is a, is a kind of having a true self-knowledge of your situation, and the younger son realizes just what a mess he has made of his life, and he's just overwhelmed with his worthlessness, and he yearns for home. He wants to go home, but he knows he can't go home anymore as a son. He's lost that. He can only go as a servant, right? And he doesn't know what he's going to meet. But the father will not let him return as a servant, only as a son. The father will not let him return as a servant, but only as a son. And this is perhaps the most <clears throat> moving, I try not to get choked up here. This is one of the most moving and vivid pictures of God's love in all the scriptures. And he arose, that is the son, and he came to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven 
And before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. And they began to celebrate. See, even though the father let the son leave the household, he never let go of him in his heart. Even as the son is far off in the distance, before the father has even, the son has even spoken a word to the father, the father is just ready. His heart is ready. He, he rushes to his son. Before he even has time to apologize, he embraces him and he kisses him. Even before he, the son can propose kind of the new terms of, the re, of his relationship as a servant, the father is clothing him with the garments and the shoes and the clothing of a son. The father doesn't demand an apology to receive him. He doesn't punish the son. He doesn't put him on probation. Quite the opposite. What you see is this extravagant love and affection for this lost son that makes no sense at all, that is completely undeserved in terms of what he did. Friends, this is God's posture to you. This is the Father's posture to you. No matter what mess you've made of your life, he is ready to receive you to kiss you, to embrace you. Do you believe this? In your heart of hearts. Not everybody in the household is happy (laughs) about the younger brother's return. The elder brother who has dutifully remained in the household of the father the whole time, is quite upset. And he refuses to join in the celebration. And what we see, he says that he was angry and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, and I've never disobeyed your command, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And it's at this point we realize that in this parable, we're not dealing with just one lost son. We're actually dealing with two lost sons. The return of the younger brother has really kind of exposed um, some family dynamics and the spiritual estate of the elder brother. And we're prone to see these two brothers as really being in opposite sides of, of the kind of spiritual you know, spectrum, but they're actually pretty close to one another. Um, they're both pretty close. See, what becomes clear is the, other, the elder brother, even though he never left home, he clearly does not perceive himself to be at home. He's lost even though he lives under the household of the father. Just like the, the younger son, when he comes back and he, he's talking to himself and he proposes to the father, just, I'll be a, a hired servant in the household. Because I know I don't, I'm not worthy to be a son. You know, it's interesting, the elder brother, he does not see himself as a son. He also sees himself as a servant. I've been slaving away in your household, and what have you given me? See, the younger brother wanted the inheritance without the father. And, but there's a sense, too, that the elder brother, too, he wants his inheritance without the father, you know. But he wants to stay in the household. 
and celebrate with his friends. And it's really interesting when you read this story, he's like, he, he uses this language that's very uh, ex- exclusionary. He's your son, mine, me, yours, right? <laughs> There's a sense of alienation and distance between himself and the father. He is lost and he is estranged even though he lives in the household, right? And again, I think this, this, you know, I don't have time for much application on this point. Tim Keller is great on this. But there, there's a way, there's a way that, that the elder brother is those of, those of us who, who grew up in the church and maybe have been, you know, we've done the right thing, we've been keeping the rules, we've been trying to do the right thing, and, and yet we're, we have the sense of disappointment, nevertheless. We have the sense that we don't belong, that we're just slaving away and we're bitter and we're angry at God, and often we're angry at those around us in the household. And part of the problem is, is that we, we don't see ourselves as sons or daughters. We see ourselves as servants. <laughs> it's an economic relationship, right? I obey and you bless, right? That's how it works, right, God? Now, what's remarkable about the father's response to the elder brother is that he is no less tender. He is no less compassionate to this self-righteous embittered son who is joyless in the face of his younger brother coming back. And you can imagine as a, as a parent, I, I would be, I'd be so upset with this elder brother. But the father, it says he entreats him. And I love that word, because the word to entreat is to tenderly and lovingly seek to persuade. It's like, come on, come on, right? Come on. The father doesn't force himself upon the son. He doesn't say, you have to get in line. He entreats him. And the father, you might seem like a pushover in this parable. Again, this is not a model for parenting necessarily, but he does one time really push back in a gentle rebuke to his son. When he and his own, his elder son, when he sees himself as this hired servant, and the father says this, and you can imagine hearing the voice of the father, the tone of the father, son, son. You're always with me, and all that I have, all that is mine is yours. Can you just hear the father pleading with this elder brother? See, the father feels the same way about elder brothers as he does about younger brothers. He longs to embrace them. He longs to receive them back into the household. So we started by reflecting on forgiveness as homecoming. That in our lives, the way that God works his forgiveness and it becomes embodied as it's a kind of a homecoming. We often leave the household of God looking for certain things. But what does it mean? What does it mean for us to have a sense of home, a sense of place in the household of God, of the Father? I just want to close with just three things. Three things that receiving God's forgiveness in our life does for us. And the first thing is this. It, it gives us an identity as beloved sons and daughters of God. That's, that's the first thing. The first thing about coming home is that you, you gain an identity as beloved son or daughter. To be a son or to be a daughter is not an achievement. It's also not something you can bestow upon yourself. It is a gift. It is something that comes by, by the fact that you were born, right? It's a gift from the Father, 
And, and to be in a household, to be a part of a family, is to be known as a son or as a daughter, which means you can't think your own identity without your relationship to the father or to a mother, right? That's what it means to be a child. It's to, it's to, it's to have that sense of, of that I, I belong because of this family relationship. And we only ever come to know ourselves truly in the world and not with a sense of restlessness and homelessness or as a cosmic orphan, which I think so many of us go through life as, until we know ourselves as beloved sons and daughters of the Father. So that's the first thing, is we get this identity as children of God. But the second one is, is we come to belong. Coming home means you belong. You have arrived at a place that is yours. And to belong is to be known and to know others, for people to know who you are and for you to know them. And belonging also, you belong not as a hired. See, there's a very different sense, like in our careers, many of us belong because we're good at our work or we've, we've done all the things. That's a, that's a normal way of belonging. There's nothing wrong with that. But belonging in a family is different. <laughs> you don't belong in a family as a servant. You don't belong in, in a family because you keep proving yourself, because you keep performing, because people st- continue to see things that are valuable about you that want to keep you around. That's the workplace. And that's all right. But unless there's a place in your world that's real and embodied where you belong not because of what you do and perform, but just because who you are as a son or a daughter, your belonging is always fragile. So we, have beloved, we are beloved, and we belong because we're beloved children. And it just means that, that our belonging is unconditional. The Father will never push us out. If we leave, it's because we left, <laughs> not because he pushed us out. So there's to be beloved, it is to belong, but finally, it is to be celebrated. Um, the picture here of the celebration is it's, it's rich. That, that the household of the Father is a place of great joy and celebration. See, that, that's, that's an ethos of forgiveness. There's a whole sermon here someday I'll preach about how forgiveness creates a household of joy. And the lack of forgiveness is actually the opposite of that, which you see in this elder brother. The household is a place of celebration. And to be a son and a daughter in the household is to be celebrated. See, forgiveness of sins isn't simply that God no longer holds you accountable for the wrongs you've done. No longer are you defined by the worst things you've ever done in your life. Quite the opposite. Actually, it means you're cherished. You're celebrated. There's a party thrown for you. This is beautifully captured by the prophet Zephaniah. where He talks about God singing over his people. And I'll just close with this picture. Friends, I want you to know that the Lord, he sings over you. He cherishes you. He celebrates you. Fear not, O Zion. Let let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. And he will quiet you by his love. And he will exalt over you with loud singing. Let's pray.
Father, I pray that we could hear that singing, the singing that happens in heaven over us as your children, that you rejoice over us. And I pray this week, Lord, that we would uh, hear in our hearts the chorus of your love for us and that you exalt over us and that you are the one who is mighty to save us even from the messes of our life that we make. We thank you for your patience with us and with your tenderness and with your love. Help us to come home and to find a place in this world established by your love. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.